This is Classic Lutheran Preaching on KNNA LP 95.7, Lincoln, Nebraska. This is Pastor John Schmidt. Due to time restraints, this is an abridged presentation of Martin Luther's sermon for the second Sunday in Advent from the year 1522. This comes from the John Nicholas Linker Collection, published in 1905 and reissued by Baker Book House in 1983 and is still available today. The text for this Sunday is from Luke chapter 21, beginning at verse 25. And there shall be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and upon the earth distress of nations in perplexity for the roaring of the sea and its billows, men fainting for fear and for expectation of the things which are coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to come to pass, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draweth nigh. And he spake to them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees, when they now shoot forth, you see it and know of your own selves that the summer is now nigh. Even so you also, when you see these things coming to pass, know you that the kingdom of God is nigh. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all things be accomplished. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with carousing and drunkenness and cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore, and pray always that you may be given strength to escape all these things that shall then come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. This is our text. The first thing for us to understand is that although the signs preceding the Judgment Day are many and great, they will all be fulfilled, even though none or very few men take note of or esteem them as such. For two things must take place according to the word and prophecy of Christ and the Apostles. First, that many and great signs will be made manifest. And secondly, that the last day will come unawares, the world not expecting it, even though that day be at the door. Though men see these signs, yea, be told that they are signs of the last day, still they will not believe, but in their security mockingly say, Thou fool, hast thou fear that the heavens will fall and that we shall live to see that day? Some indeed must see it, and it will be those who least expect it. That there will be such security and indifference among men, let us prove by the words of Christ and the apostles. Christ says in the 34th and 35th verses, Take heed to yourselves, lest perhaps your hearts be overcharged with carousing and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come on you suddenly as a snare. For so shall it come upon all them that dwell in the face of all the earth. From these words it is clear that men in great measure will give themselves over to carousing and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that, drowned as it were in these things, they will rest secure and continue to dwell in the earth as if the dreadful day were far away. For were there no such security and heedlessness, that day would not break in unawares. But he says it will come like a snare by which birds and beasts are caught at a time when most concerned about their food and least expecting to be entrapped. 
In this figure he gives us clearly to understand that the world will continue its carousing, eating and drinking, building and planting, and diligently seeking after earthly things, and will look upon the day of judgment as yet a thousand and more years off, when, in the twinkling of an eye, they may stand before the terrible judgment bar of God. The words of Christ in Luke 17 say the same. For as the lightning, when it flashes out of the one part under the heavens, shines unto the other part under heaven, so shall the Son of Man be in his day. See here again that the day will break upon the world with the utmost suddenness. The same further appears in what follows. As it was in the days of Noah, even so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, even as it came to pass in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But in the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. After the same manner it shall be in the day that the Son of Man is revealed. These words abundantly show that people will rest so secure and will be so deeply buried beneath the cares of this life that they will not believe the day is at hand. There is now no doubt that Christ did not foretell these signs in the expectation that no one would note nor recognize them when they should appear, although a few indeed will do so, just as in the days of Noah and Lot, but few knew the punishment in store for them. Were this not true, the admonition of Christ would have been in vain. When you see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh. Then lift up your heads, because your redemption draweth nigh. There must then be some, at least, who do recognize the signs and lift up their heads and wait for their redemption, although they do not really know on what day they will come. Again, verse 27, And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Here power may again signify the hosts of heaven, saints, and all creatures that will come with Christ to judgment. I believe this is the correct interpretation, or it may mean the special power and might which will characterize this coming of Christ in contradistinction to his first coming. He says not only that he will come, but that they will see him come. At his birth he came also, but men did not recognize him. He comes now through the gospel in a spiritual manner into the hearts of believers, this also is not by observation. But his last coming will be such that all must see him, as Revelation 1 says, and every eye shall see him. And they shall see that he is none other than the man Christ Jesus in bodily form, as he was born of the Virgin Mary and walked upon this earth. He might have said, They shall see me, but that would not have clearly indicated his bodily form. But when he says, They shall see the Son of Man, he clearly indicates that it will be a bodily coming, a bodily seeing in bodily form, a coming in great power and glory, accompanied by the hosts of heaven. He shall sit upon the clouds and be accompanied by all the saints. The scriptures speak much of that day, and everywhere point to the same. From verse 28. And when these things come to pass, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draweth nigh. Here you may say, who can lift up his head in the face of such terrible wrath and judgment? If the whole world is filled with fear at that day, and lets fall its head and countenance out of terror and anxiety, 
How shall we look up and lift up our heads, which evidently means, how shall we manifest any joy in and looking for these signs? In answer, I would say that all this is spoken only to those who are really Christians and not to heathen and Jews. True Christians are so afflicted with all manner of temptations and persecutions that in this life they are miserable. Therefore they wait and long and pray for redemption from sin and all evil, as we also pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, and deliver us from evil. If we are true Christians, we will earnestly and heartily join in this prayer. If we do not so pray, we are not yet true Christians. If we pray aright, our condition must truly be such that, however terrible these signs may be, we will look up to them with joy and earnest desire, as Christ admonishes. When these things begin to come to pass, look up. He does not say, Be filled with fear or drop your heads, for there is coming that for which we have been so earnestly praying. If we really wish to be freed from sin and death and hell, we must look forward to this coming of the Lord with joy and pleasure. St. Paul also says in 2 Timothy 4, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give to me in that day, and not only to me, but also to all them that have loved his appearing. If he gives the crown to those who love his appearing, what will he give to those who hate and dread it? Without doubt, to enemies, eternal condemnation. From Titus chapter 2 looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. And Luke 12, And be ye yourselves like unto men looking for their Lord when he shall return from the marriage feast. But what do those do who are filled with fear and do not desire to have him come when they pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Deliver us from the evil one. Do they not stand in the presence of God and lie to their own hurt? Do they not strive against the will of God who will have this day for the redemption of the saints? It is necessary, therefore, that we exercise great care, lest we be found to hate and to dread that day. Such dread is a bad omen and belongs to the damned, whose cold minds and hard hearts must be terrified and broken if perchance they might reform. But to believers, that day will be comforting and sweet. That day will be the highest joy and safety to the believer, and the deepest terror and anguish to the unbeliever, just as also in this life the truth of the gospel are exceedingly sweet to the godly and exceedingly hateful to the wicked. Why should the believer fear and not rather exceedingly rejoice, since he trusts in Christ who comes as judge to redeem him and to be his everlasting portion? But you say, I would indeed await his coming with joy if I were holy and without sin. Well, I should answer, what relief do you find in fear and flight? It would not redeem you from sin if you were to be filled with terror for a thousand years. The damned are eternally filled with fear of that day, but this does not take away their sin. Yea, this fear rather increases sin and renders men unfit to appear without sin on that day when it comes. Fear must pass out of the soul, and there must enter in a desire for righteousness and for that day. But if you really desire to be free from sin and to be holy, then give thanks to God and continue to desire to be more free from sin. There is no one so well prepared for the judgment day as he who longs to be without sin. If you have such desire, what do you fear? 
you are then in perfect accord with the purpose of that day. It comes to set free from sin all who desire it, and you belong to that number. Return thanks to God and abide in that desire. Christ says he is coming, and it is for our redemption. But do not deceive yourself and be satisfied, perhaps, with the simple desire to be free from sin and to await the coming of the day without fear. Perhaps your heart is false and you are filled with fear, not because you would be free from sin, but because in the face of that day you cannot sin freely and unrestrained. See to it that the light within you be not darkness. For a heart that would be truly free from sin will certainly rejoice in the day that fulfills its desire. If the heart does not so rejoice, there is no true desire to be loosed from its sin. Therefore we must above all things lay aside all hatred and abhorrence of this day and exercise diligence that we may really desire to have our sins taken away. When this is done, we may not only calmly await the day, but with heartfelt desire and joy pray for it and say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In this you must cast aside all feelings and conceit, hold fast to the comforting words of Christ, and rest in them alone. Could he admonish, comfort, and strengthen you in a more delicate and loving manner? In the first place, he says, you will hear of wars, but you should have no fears. And when he tells you to have no fears, what else does he mean than that he commands you to be of good cheer and to discern the signs with joy? Secondly, he tells you to look up. Thirdly, to lift up your heads. And fourthly, he speaks of your redemption. What can comfort and strengthen you if such a word does not? Do you think he would deceive you and try to lead you into a false confidence? My dear hearer, let such a word not have been said in vain. Thank God and trust in it. There is no other comfort or advice if you cast this to the winds. It is not your condemnation but your redemption of which Christ speaks. Will you turn his words around and say, It is not your redemption but your condemnation? Will you flee from your own salvation? Will you not greet and thank your God who comes out to meet and to greet you? He has no doubt also spoken this word for the faint-hearted, who, although they are devout and prepared for the last day, are yet filled with great anxiety and are hindered in taking part in his coming with that desire which should be found at the end of the world. Therefore he calls attention to their redemption. For when at the end of the world sin will hold such sway, and by the side of sin, the punishment for sin with pestilence, war, and famine. It will be necessary to give to believers strength and comfort against both evils, sin and its punishment. Therefore he uses the sweet and comforting word redemption, which is so dear to the heart of man. What is redemption? Who would not be redeemed? Who would have a desire to abide in the desert of sin and punishment? Who would not wish an end to such misery and woe, such perils for souls, such ruin for man? Especially should this be the case when the Savior allures, invites, and comforts us in such an endearing way. The godless fanatical preachers are to be censured who in their sermons deprive people of these words of Christ and faith in them, who desire to make people devout by terrifying them, and who teach them to prepare for the last day by relying upon their good works as satisfaction for their sins. Here despair, fear, and terror must remain and grow with it, hatred, aversion, and abhorrence for the coming of the Lord, and enmity against God be established in the heart. 
for they picture Christ as nothing but a stern judge whose wrath must be appeased by works, and they never present him as the Redeemer, as he calls and offers himself, of whom we are to expect that out of pure grace he will redeem us from sin and evil. Such is always the result where the gospel is not rightly proclaimed. When hearts are only driven by commands and threats, they will only be estranged from God and be led to abhor him. We ought to terrify, but only the obstinate and hardened. And when these have become terrified and dejected also, we ought to strengthen and comfort them. From all this we learn how few there are who pray the Lord's Prayer acceptably, even though it is prayed unceasingly in all the world. There are those who would rather that the day would never come. This is nothing else than to desire that the kingdom of God may not come. Therefore the heart prays contrary to the lips, and while God judges according to the heart, they judge according to the lips. For this reason they institute so many prayers, fill all the churches with their bawling, and think that they pray aright when in reality their prayer is, May thy kingdom not come, or not just yet. Tell me, is not such a prayer blasphemy? Is it not of such a prayer that the psalmist speaks in Psalm 109, Let his prayer be turned into sin? Yet he who feels such fear must not despair, but rather use it wisely. He uses it wisely who permits such fear to urge and admonish him to pray for grace, that this fear may be taken away, and he be given joy and delight in that day. Christ is promised in Matthew 7, Every one that asketh receiveth. Therefore those who are fearful are nearer their salvation than the hard-hearted and reprobate, who neither fear nor find comfort in that day. For though they do not have a desire for it, they have something within which admonishes them to pray for such a desire. On the other hand, he uses fear unwisely, who allows it to increase and abides in the same, as though he could thereby be cleansed from sin. This leads to nothing good. Fear is to be a power to drive us to seek such love and pray for it. Where fear is not cast out, it opposes the will of God and antagonizes your own salvation. It thus becomes a sin against the Holy Spirit. It is, however, not necessary to say that the individual must be altogether without fear, for we still have human nature abiding in us. This is weak and cannot exist altogether without the fear of death and judgment. But the Spirit must be uppermost in the mind, as Christ says in Matthew 26, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. From verse 29. And he spoke to them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, you see it, and know that of your own selves that the summer is now nigh. Even so you also, when you see these things coming to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh. Pure words of comfort are these. He does not put forth a parable from the fall or winter season, when all the trees are bare and the dreary days begin, but a parable from the spring and summer season, when everything is joyous, when all creation buds forth and rejoices. By this he clearly teaches that we are to look forward to the last day with as much joy and delight as all creation shows in spring and summer. What is the meaning of this parable if in it he does not teach us this? In applying it, he does not say your hell or condemnation is at hand, but the kingdom of God. 
What else does it signify than that the kingdom of God is at hand and that our redemption is near? The kingdom of God is but ourselves, as Christ says in Luke 17, For lo, the kingdom of God is within you. Therefore it draweth nigh when we are nearing our redemption from sin and evil. In this life it begins in the spirit. But since we must still battle with sin and suffer much evil, and since death is still before us, the kingdom of God is not yet perfect in us. But when once sin and death and all evil are taken away, then will it be perfect. This the last day will bring, and not this life. Therefore, my dear hearer, examine your life, probe your heart to ascertain whether it is disposed toward this day. Do not put your trust in your own good life, for that would soon be put to shame. But think of and strengthen your faith in order that the day may not be a terror to you as to the damned, but be your joy as the day of your salvation and of the kingdom of God in you. Then when you think or hear of the same, your heart will leap for joy and earnestly long for its coming. If you do not wish to pronounce judgment upon yourself, then do not think that you would be able to stand in that day, even with the meritorious deeds of all the saints. Verse 32 Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all things be accomplished. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Why does the Lord so fortify his word and confirm it beyond measure by parables, oaths, and tokens of the generation which shall remain though heaven and earth pass away? This all happens because, as was said above, all the world is so secure and with open eyes despises the signs to such a degree that perhaps no word of God has been so despised as this which foretells and characterizes the judgment day. It will appear to the world that there are no signs, and even though people should see them, they will still not believe. Even the very elect of God may doubt such words and tokens in order that the day may come when the world is never so secure, and thus be suddenly overwhelmed in its security, as St. Paul said above. Therefore Christ would assure us, and wake us up to look for the day when the signs appear. We are to realize that though the signs be uncertain, those are not in danger who look upon them as tokens or indicators, while those who despise them are in the greatest danger. Hence let us play with certainties and consider the above-named signs as truly such lest we run with the unspiritual. If we are mistaken, we have after all hit the mark. If they are mistaken, it is a mistake for eternity with them. Jesus calls the Jews this generation. This passage, therefore, clearly indicates that the common saying is not true, which holds that all the Jews will become Christians, and that the passage John 10, and they shall become one flock and one shepherd, is not fulfilled when the Jews go over to the heathen. But when the heathen come to the Jews and become Christians at the time of the apostles, as St. Augustine often explains, Christ's words in John 10 indicate the same. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock and one shepherd. Note that he speaks clearly of the heathen who have come to the Jewish fold. Therefore the passage has long since been fulfilled. But here he says, This generation shall not pass away till the end come. That is, the Jews who crucified Christ must remain as a token. And although many will be converted, 
the generation and Jewish character must remain. Some have also been concerned about how heaven and earth will pass away. Everything will be new created in greatest beauty. Our bodies will shine in brilliancy and the sun be much more glorious than now. Peter speaks of this day in Second Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall be dissolved with fervent heat, and the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. But according to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Paul also testifies to the same in 1 Corinthians 3, that the last day shall be revealed in fire, and Isaiah 30, the light of the moon shall be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun shall be sevenfold as the light of seven days, in the day that Jehovah binds up the hurt of his people and heals the stroke of their wound. Likewise, Isaiah 65, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. But where do our souls dwell when the abode of every creature is a fire and there is no earthly dwelling place? Answer, my dear hearer, where is the soul now? Or where is it when we sleep and are not conscious of what is taking place in our bodies and in the world around us? Do you think that God cannot so preserve or hold the souls of men in his hand that they will never know how heaven and earth passed away? Or do you think that he must have a bodily home for the soul just as a shepherd has a stable for his sheep? It is enough for you to know that they are in God's hands and not in the care of any creature. Though you do not understand how it happens, do not be led astray. Since you have not yet learned what happens to you when you fall asleep or awaken, and can never know how near you are to waking or sleeping, though you daily do both, how do you expect to understand all this question? The scripture says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, in Psalm 31, and so let it be. Meanwhile there will arise a new heaven and a new earth, and our bodies will be revived again to eternal salvation. If we knew just how the soul would be kept, faith would be at an end. But now we journey and do not know just where we go, but we put our confidence in God and rest in his keeping, and our faith abides in all its dignity. Amen, so let it be. Amen. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.